0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, your boundary is my trigger edition. It's Wednesday, October 9th, 2019. On today's show, Joker is the Batman prequel supervillain origin story of your dreams or nightmares, who can tell? This wild artifact was directed and co-written by Todd Phillips and it stars an emaciated Joaquin Phoenix and the uh, title character, of course, and then when Jeffrey Tambor was cancelled for his behavior both on and off set it meant that his uh, creation, great creation, Maura Pfefferman was for all intents and purposes dead. What would happen then to the TV show Transparent? Well, now we know. We discuss its two-hour musical finale. And finally, Wesley Morris was shaping up to be one of the great critics of his generation. And then he admitted that he loves Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> we discussed this uh, very odd choice with Wesley Morris himself, friend of the program. Uh, maybe we'll be able to refrock him. Who knows? Uh, I'm joined, of course, by Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, good. Uh, and Dana Stevens, of course, is the film critic for Slate magazine. Hey, Dana. Bonjour. Haha bonjour. I've scarcely been more excited to talk about three topics than this week, so I've just jinxed the show. Let's see what we can do with that.
1: <laughs> also, we have a favor to ask. Our partner is conducting a survey and would be grateful for your help in answering a few questions. It will take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps to support our advertisers. Please go to SlateStudy.com to complete this short survey now.
0: Arthur Fleck is a clown by profession, a stand-up comedian by aspiration, and a deeply, deeply troubled loner. Otherwise, he lives alone and cares for his aging mother. And he is, and I think the movie is extremely frank about this, he's mentally ill. This both as naturalistically, vividly, and tenderly portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix, who inhabits him as a a real and a not cartoon psychotic, and it's in the substance of the story. He sees a state-funded therapist or social worker, uh, and he's on a whole battery of, uh, of uh, I think, what we're supposed to take as antipsychotic medications. He is unhealthily obsessed with a late-night comedian played by Robert De Niro. More about that. That's an extremely pointed casting choice. Uh, and he's also uh, equally obsessed with the Wayne family. He believes he's the forsaken son of the Wayne patriarch, which would, of course, make him Batman's brother. He isn't. I don't think that's a spoiler. Um, we follow along as he wanders through his own hellish, anime-filled nightmare world. And I would I would I would say that it's very hard to describe the plot of this movie. It's not effectively a plot-driven movie. But Ambles, he kind of wanders or ambles, but really to do justice to the film, and we'll get into it, he shuffles, he dances, he... Prances. He he moves both animatedly and depressedly. It is such an astonishing performance. Anyway, um, the movie is intended to be more reminiscent of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, I think, than it is of Dark Knight or any of the superhero movies. It is a very, very equivocal artifact. It received an eight-minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival, where it won the top prize. It has been openly reviled by some critics. We will get into all of this. I would say let's listen to a clip. We don't have one. What we have is part of the trailer, so we will make do. We'll listen to that.
2: Arthur.
3: I have some bad news for you. <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, to do you? You
0: just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All oh, I have I don't even know where to begin. I mean, there are a couple of ways to frame this are, is this movie nihilistic or about nihilism? And then the other way might be, you know, if it is the case that Joaquin Phoenix's performance in the movie is great, and the movie is inextricable from the performance, which totally commands the screen throughout, isn't it a great movie? I mean, I don't even know how to phrase my opening question. So what did you think of this movie?
1: (laughs) I mean, it it is for me right now hard to talk about it without hacking my way out of the thicket of opinions and takes and countertakes about it. And if it weren't for the fact that it's you guys, I would be so sick of talking about Joker that I would just shut down the conversation. <laughs> because at this point, I mean, as you said, it opened in Venice to a, a huge standing ovation. It also got the top prize at Venice. And then just a, a couple, I think, weeks later, it uh, it opened in Toronto and had all this backlash that you're talking about. It also had a huge opening in, in theaters this weekend, where I think it broke the record for an October opening of, of any movie. I guess to get down to the root of did I like it or not? No. I think this is a bad movie. <laughs> and all moral <laughs> questions aside, although I can get into those too, um, all moral questions aside, I was looking at my watch. I recognized almost every plot turn and saw it coming in advance. Uh, It felt like this closed-down, kind of rancid (laughs) world... And those elements that you mentioned that are borrowed from Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy are so overt and so obvious and so mm-hmm. leaning yeah. on the the genius of the movies that came before them to have this kind of borrowed profundity that I just found it irritating. The music cues are so on the nose and dumb. I mean, basically, I think this is a bad and dumb movie, but it is made with a great deal <laughs> of craft. It looks beautiful. The production design costume, all that stuff is great. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is well, outside of this movie, I would say I think he's one of our great actors. I, he's extraordinary. He makes extraordinary choices. He's weird. He's offbeat. He's scary. Even in roles that aren't meant to be scary, he can be scary because of his intensity, right? We talked about him last year in You Were Never Really Here, the, the Lynn Ramsey film where he plays this severely depressed hitman. and. Uh, I I loved that movie. Julia hated that movie. Steve, I think you were somewhat on the fence. No, I hated it. You hated it? Okay. That's right. I was the one person who stood up for it. And uh, although I agree that his ending, the last 10 or 15 minutes are are really bad, that movie still really haunted me because of him and because of this this just balls-to-the-wall intensity that he brings to everything he does. The question is, when he's bringing that intensity to a movie that is not worthy of it and a character that doesn't really make sense as written and is really just a contrivance on the page... Can that amount to a great performance? To me, he was sort of spinning in the void in this role. And I think the argument could even be made that he's overacting, but I don't think that really makes sense because, as you say, Steve, if the movie means anything, it it hangs on his performance. It's not as if some more muted version of the same performance would have been a better one, you know? Um, But there's something about this character, and we can get into what exactly that is, that's very... um, self-pitying. The The movie itself wants to heap that same pity on him. And, I mean, essentially the emotional work that this movie wants to do on the viewer is so manipulative and crass and so its hand is so obvious that it's trying to play that I just resisted it the whole time. And what that... Game is that it's trying to play. I guess you could sum up as saying it wants us to feel really sorry for this guy, Arthur Fleck, his character, for the first 20 to 30 minutes of the movie and rope us in that way because he's so pitiful and so you know spat upon by society and beaten by everyone and uh, put upon by the world. And then when he turns around and becomes a murderer in the middle of the movie, I guess we're supposed to kind of cheer um, him on. I, I don't know. I, I give up. I give up. You guys take it now.
0: Julia, I imagine it must be interesting to experience this movie both as a resident of Los Angeles and as a, you know, editor of a major, you know, arts and entertainment section. You must be kind of in it uh in a way that we aren't uh, on the East Coast somehow. What's your experience of the film and the phenomenon surrounding the film and how did one influence the other?
3: Oh, I am so torn between being really troubled by and suspicious of The phenomenon of people writing this movie off before it gets seen or suggesting that it's somehow like a toxic, volatile and dangerous element. I just think we should not characterize things that way. We go down a very dark path when we um, suggest that specific items of culture, however nihilist or dumb, are... To be treated more as potential weapons or weaponizing forces rather than pieces of culture to think about. So I I like went into the movie primed to be the backlash to the backlash and like trying to find some something to liken it. And I did really like the production design. I will say that, um, but I think this movie is just deeply confused and stupid about. About the origins of violence, I think. I I I I just I the you know, the notion that we should spend a film thinking about the you know, inhabiting the mind of someone who is kind of violent and asocial. I mean, obviously Taxi Driver is the is the key reference for this movie, but like, yes, of course we should be able to make art about the minds of people who are um, disturbed and 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 dissociating from what we think of as safe, normal human life. Uh, i I just i I'm trying to put my finger on what it is about this movie that makes it feel so unrevealing on that topic. I mean, that's the part that makes Joaquin's performance feel empty to me is that the underlying idea doesn't feel particularly worth exploring. And so then you're just mired in this like beautiful, saturated, grimy, 70s muck uh, without having put yourself through the torture of spending all your time with this elaborate, show-offy sociopath. For what? There was just a big for what at the middle of this movie for me.
1: When you say that the basic idea doesn't seem worth exploring, what idea, how would you sum up what that idea is?
3: the idea of how how is it that a man comes to feel so alienated from society that he commits acts of violence that idea seems very worth exploring like i wouldn't want every movie to be about that but i reject the idea that such a film should not be made i just found that in this film no interesting or revelatory answer is provided to that question you feel like you're yeah. just watching a, a big performative riff on the concept, but without any interesting thinking behind it. Does that make sense? Mm.
0: I want to say straight up front that I didn't enjoy the movie. I was deeply, deeply unsettled by it. I mean, as unsettled as I've been by a Hollywood movie in maybe 20 years, uh, partially because of what was going on, overwhelmingly because of what was going on on the screen, partially what was going on inside the theater. There were antisocial young men in the performance that I saw. They did not act, act out overly so. They acted out a little bit on the way in uh, and um, were told that they might be escorted out. Uh, there's an aura... In the same way that the aura of violence, narcissism, and nihilism are actually in the theater and on the screen to a point where the distinction between the two is blurred, inside the movie itself, the instability, narcissism, grandiosity, and psychosis of the main character is both in his head and in the um, general environment of the film, which is meant to be very reminiscent, obviously, of both the cinema of the 1970s and New York City of the 1970s. Um, The second thing I would say is that It's a dance performance that joaquin phoenix is giving as much as an actor performance it's almost more reminiscent of japanese no play which involves obviously mask and dance uh and elements of mime uh he is he is moving it it, which is so wild because it's also a super naturalistic performance of mental illness i mean there are moments when you are really supposed to believe you are seeing a a mentally ill person as they actually are uh, in the world and as they actually live in their own head. Um, but it's punctuated by these moments where he, he very often goes into a very mime-like dance, especially at moments of intense, um, uh, social discomfort for him or verging on apotheosis, right? As he transforms into the supervillain, um, uh, or commits acts of violence for the first time and understands what violence might mean to him. He goes into, dance um he's obviously he's lost an amazing amount of weight for this he's emaciated in a way that's disturbing and meant to be disturbing the second thing i'll say about the film is that absolutely without question it's, it's and i'm going to use a pretentious phrase but i have to do it it's mise en scene is magnificent i think it's look in addition to the production value which is flawless i mean it's a remarkably beautifully um uh produced film in that sense uh the camera work, I mean, I have no, no feelings about Todd Phillips as a director really going into the picture. I, he made this movie look, what he did with the camera to make this movie look and feel the way it did, I thought was quite extraordinary. I mean, verging, verging on virtuosic. Um, I think it is a extremely daring gesture to do a totally naturalistic depiction of mental illness that's meant to be deeply unsettling as a way of telling this backstory added to which you never ever use violence uh in an action sequence none of violence in this movie is never part of an action sequence there's nothing that looks like not only a superhero movie but but really even a wide release you know uh hollywood genre picture i mean violence is never seen as 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 redemptive or thrilling even though you're waiting for it i mean there's this uneasy way in which you kind of want cathartic violence to happen. So the movie suddenly will become about something. And so I'm I'm not on the side of the movie exactly, but it has wormed its way into me in ways that are completely unexpected. And I actually don't think the movie's about how spat upon people in the end return, return toward violence at all. I think it's a movie about about extreme, extreme narcissism, which as people always forget is both thing, it's things. It's both the complete feeling of total emptiness and the compensatory feeling of total fulfillment or grandiosity. And it's following along this person's completely socially unsatisfying and isolated life, pushing in its own weirdly sort of committedly turgid way, sort of pushing that person towards this moment of fulfillment and apotheosis. And I won't give anything away, but I'm in that a est- Astonishing last shot of the movie. I mean, actually it's not the last, last shot. I don't think, but, but the moment when the apotheosis happens, it just brings all of those elements together. The dance, the mime, uh, you know, the odd, slow pacing, the idea that the movie's really about narcissistic, you know, self-fulfillment. They all come through in that last shot. I mean, he kind of made something that's a total rebuke. I mean, I really think this is almost as powerful a rebuke to the, direction Hollywood movies have gone by following the buck and making superhero sequel after superhero sequel. This is as totally undermining of that project as I think anything I've read or seen. So to me, this movie just feels real and important, right? I don't feel like it's a vacuous gesture on the part of shallow people trying to have it both ways. And in that sense, I'm blown away. Now, whether it itself at some level at the end of the day is itself somehow exploitative and, uh, exploitative and nihilistic. I still can't make up my mind, but be, I think I'm supposed to be in that weird ambivalent space. And in that sense, I rate the movie a success. I, I know it's crazy, but I mean, I just, I mean, I walked out kind of hating it. But I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's just fucking in me. I mean, so something worked.
1: Wow. I mean, I'm I'm huh. totally surprised. I sent around to you guys last night, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, a roundup of different Academy voters' response to this, anonymous responses from Academy voters that were rounded up by a reporter who interviewed a bunch of people in Hollywood about it for The Hollywood Reporter. And, uh, I mean, Steve, I feel like your response could have belonged in the incredible diversity of responses in that roundup, which, you know, went from, this movie is brilliant, it should win every award, to one person said, I don't know if it should win every award or be banned. You know, it was just all so extreme. Yeah. Um, i mean i guess in a way i feel like everything you just said gives the movie it is so much more interesting and intelligent than anything in the movie <laughs> itself and if only i felt that kind of critique of what Hollywood has been doing for the last 20 years or anything that consciously and clearly uh, engineered in the movie. I mean, to me, it just felt like it was a muddled, vacuous mess. And honestly, I spent Mm. most of the time watching it thinking, when is this going to be over so I can go home and write about it and be done with the goddamn Joker and see some movies at the festival that I'm actually interested in. So I guess in that sense it did not worm its way into my head. It's extremely unpleasant to sit through, but I can't honestly say that it stayed with me that much. Uh, And in, in fact, this incredible last shot of Apotheosis you're talking about, I have no idea what image you mean.
2: I have no idea.
1: Maybe you can tell me off mic so we don't spoil it for anyone. But uh, the way that sort of politics enters into the movie toward the end, and we haven't talked about that, but there's a big demonstration. There's sort of a clown uprising in Gotham City at one point because, you know, the Joker is becoming this kind of folk hero. And uh, I guess those are the scenes that people are worried about in terms of, you know, sparking some sort of real world violence, etc. Thank God nothing like that did happen this weekend. There's still a lot more weekends that this movie will be being seen by lots of people. And, you know, let's hope that that was all canard but you know and obviously i don't think it should be censored or never made or anything like that but i understand why for example families of the aurora victims demonstrated Mm -hmm. against this against this movie and wanted todd phillips to donate some of his proceeds and i don't think todd phillips has handled the press particularly well in relation to you know people asking these questions he's kind of gotten a chip on his shoulder about it and talked about how the culture's too woke or something and uh, i think that there are some real questions to be asked about whether the violence in this movie is exploitative or not. And for example, those antisocial young men you talked about, Steve, in your screening, I don't know what they were doing or saying, but more than any movie I've written about in a while, including any Marvel movie, this has gotten a lot of those antisocial young men up in my mentions, you know, saying bad things about me because I didn't review the movie positively. You know, it's one of those movies that I think, let's put it this way, even if the movie is not uh, dumb and and sort of uh, malevolent, there are some pretty dumb and ill-intentioned people that are championing it. And that division in the fan response is something that that I find disturbing.
3: I will say that my like primary praise for this movie is the degree to which Joaquin acts with his shoulder blades. Like the whole character is just led by emaciated shoulder blades, like the, the number of kind of like canted, cocked over shoulders and I don't know. I've never seen someone act with their shoulder blades before, and Joaquin definitely acted with his shoulder blades here. So, if there is a best supporting shoulder blade
2: <laughs> award,
3: I would Be- give it to Joaquin for this The Golden
1: Scapula?
0: Yeah, I was going to say Scapular <laughs> Agony. Really, <yeah>. uh, it's, <laughs> it's really true. Anyway, listen, this movie's going to make a goddamn billion dollars no matter what we say. And that's going to make me hate it, if nothing else. So, uh, anyway, it's called Joker. And um, we'll get a lot of mail on this one, so have at it. All right, moving on. All right. Before we go any further, I'm sure we have some business to attend to. Dana, what do you have?
1: Yes, Steve, we have a few things today. First of all, this is a big one that a lot of listeners have been asking for, and now you've got it. We've gotten some complaints that our feed, the Culture Gabfest Fest feed, sometimes features other Slate culture podcasts besides our show. And we've heard that some of you would prefer to get just the Culture Gab Fest in your feed. So if you're one of those people, Slate has created a new feed that should meet your needs. You can find this by searching for Culture Gabfest in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And that way, rather than bringing in other culture shows you will just get us. But I will say that if you want to stick to that feed that mixes up our podcast with occasional other culture podcasts from Slate, it's a good way to discover podcasts you might not know about, like, for example, Flashback, the Slate Plus podcast that I've been doing with K. Austin Collins. So whichever way you want to do it, you can now choose your own feed wherever you get your podcasts. So that's number one. Secondly, as we've been talking about for the last few shows, we have some live shows coming up in November. We're coming to L.A. and then to Vancouver, November 13th in L.A. That's at the Barnsdall Gallery Art Theater at Barnsdall Art. Park. And November 15th, we will be in Vancouver at the Granville Island stage. We're really hoping to get people out for both those performances. And we hope also to plan either before or after some sort of cocktail hour where we can mingle and meet you all. You can find out more information about both these shows and buy tickets at slate.com live. And finally, in Slate Plus today, we have some extra Joker content. Even though I began that Joker segment at the top of the show saying, this is it, this is the last time I talk about Joker, we had so much to say that our producer ended up jamming some of it, including everything spoiler-related, into an extra segment for Slate Plus. So if you want to hear that segment and other segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to Slate.com slash Culture Plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, on with the show.
0: Transparent was one of the first shows to prove out the streaming model for Amazon. Uh, It's a family dramedy from the singular genius of Jill Soloway. Uh, Television and gender politics are both moving so quickly in our era, it's easy to forget how landmark a show this really was. It was as frank uh, about both gender and sexuality and being Jewish as popular culture, I think, has ever been. It's MacGuffin, as I think everyone probably knows, is a patriarch of a well-to-do L.A. family, comes out uh, as trans. And what followed was an exploration of the smaller lies and evasions born of that big lie. The Pfefferman kids included a married woman discovering she might be lesbian, a young Lothario realizing he might be a sex addict. And, of course, Gabby Hoffman's deathless turn as Allie... Who is discovering she is actually Ari, i.e., non binary? Uh, they've all reunited, minus Jeffrey Tambor, to make a musical finale. Uh, as I said in my introduction, introduction Jeffrey Tambor essentially was written out of the show due to his on and off screen behavior. Uh, the MacGuffin of this uh, musical finale is Maura is Dead. Let's listen to a clip. What's your mumble
3: jumbo? That shakah portion. For my bum it's fine every time. Oh, yes,
2: Jesus. yes.
3: It also happens to be this week,
2: which is odd timing. Do you guys wanna know what it means? Uh uh-huh. uh.
3: It means that if you leave your parents' house and go out into the world and do something different
1: than what they taught you that you will be blessed that your life will be blessed and everybody who's nice to you gets blessed and everybody who's mean to you gets cursed i like that it's good
0: julia i stuck with the show i loved it uh i haven't seen all of it but i've seen uh, the lion's share of it certainly uh what about you
3: I did not stick with it after watching a couple episodes of the first season. And let me tell you, a musical finale of, a sh- of any show, you know, probably involves taking actors who aren't necessarily trained to sing and getting them to dance and break the format of the existing show. <laughs> but, and, and seeing it when you love the show all the way along must be a trip. But tuning in just for this finale, having watched only like a couple hours of the first season... <laughs> It's a real doozy. It is mm. a doozy of a thing. It is so like weird and seemingly ill-conceived and strange and thin and reedy and warbly i mean it's like it 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 feels like if you if we were to all burst into song and just be like now we're doing the podcast like it does not feel that many levels beyond that as it starts and then the thing just kind of keeps going and like picking up momentum and becoming this just juggernaut of self-confidence strangeness and by the end i was like yes technicolor song about the joy of cost okay i am in <laughs> And I do not know how it got me there. Like, I basically spent the first hour being like, what the what? This is what this show is. And then by the <laughs> end, I was like, sing it, Judith. And so really, I... you were fist pumping along with the Cost number. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in- incredulously.
2: This pain in all of us remains at quite a cost. Six million.
3: But, like, you know, of all of the things that so-called peak TV has begat, uh, that it begat this, like, very specific rendering of, you know, modern Jewishness, among other things, and its relationship to modern gender. I, In song, like, you would not have found this on NBC in the 1990s. And uh, I guess I'm glad it exists.
0: Uh, Dana. It sounds like maybe you didn't quite make it to the joy of cost. Well, I mean, Joyfully. I I will
1: say I will say I agree that this this finale super super has the courage of its convictions. I mean, I I guess my experience with Transparent is we we visited it a couple times on the show. I think the very first time we talked about Transparent was as you said when it was just essentially a proof of concept for Amazon having original programming at all. And I think we did a segment that was let's watch these three half hour pilots, you know, that are the the new offerings of. Amazon, the the now producer of content. And uh, and I think we all agreed, oh, the one that I can actually see turning into a real show is this transparent thing. That's got something interesting going on. Then I think we revisited it later on. And I know that the season when they all went to Israel, I watched at least part of. I mean, I've watched enough of Transparent that, you know, like, it's a soap opera, essentially, right? It's sort of a high-class soap opera. And when something is a soap opera, if you visited a few times, you sort of know enough about the characters. Like, I could fill in the spaces to imagine who these extra characters were. Because I knew, as you said, what the sort of Psychological profile of each of the siblings and the parents were so I didn't feel completely at sea in the in the world of this this musical finale. Um, but I think I kind of agree with Willa Paskin's review in Slate, which the title or I was or very early in the review she says this is a a must see train wreck, and that's sort of how I feel about the the musical finale. It's it is very courageous and very weird. Almost none of the songs are particularly good. Um, I wouldn't say that I walked out tapping my toe to any of them. But the the idea of taking non-singers and making them sing, almost Mamma Mia style, is kind of a brave thing to do, especially when they're mixed in with some people like Judith Light, who plays the the mother, the widow of Jeffrey Tambor's character. Um as she actually has musical training and dance training, and so her numbers kind of ascend to a different plane. There's also some people who come from outside the world of the show, who are theater actors within the show, right? Who are who are really good performers. Catherine Hahn is really good in her one musical number, and so is Richard Kind, the beloved character actor, has a has a really fun number early on. But in general, everybody seems really uncomfortable with their singing, and yet the show kind of embraces that. And I guess that I respect it, but oh, my God, it's so touchy-feely. I have a friend who has this this gesture that he does when things get too sort of new age and touchy-feely and he's embarrassed about it. It's like this finger twiddle. Actually, he listens to the show, so he's going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, this kind of awkward finger twiddle that sort of means I'm really emotionally uncomfortable right now. And I was twiddling my way through this entire two-hour finale.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, so I stuck with the show. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was very, very, very funny, but I also thought it was wise and it was very wise about how the silences and lies of the parental generation work their way into the personalities of the second generation, you know, and then express themselves, uh, in pathologies, both great and small. Um, and it was always moving in the direction of a wisdom that it wanted to add to that, which is that. That mental health, or or becoming a fully autonomous and realized and healthy human being, isn't transcending that, but but sitting in it, as this episode says, um, you know, is is really understanding. I mean, there's an incredible moment in this episode, I thought incredible moment, when someone uh, at the wake or whatever it's called in uh, the sh- sitting shiva, I guess they're they're at uh, uh, the patriarchs, the matriarch. Mora's house. Uh, and Gabby Hoffman is, uh, is asked about the house kind of idly, like, oh, this is where you grew up. What a big house. I mean, what a remarkable house. And then the person says, somewhat uncouthly says, was it a happy childhood? And there's a pause. Right? And she of all the kids is the one obviously who is most ostent- ostensibly troubled by her upbringing. And then she says, it made me who I am. And it just seems to me that is the central wisdom of the show as a whole and this finale in particular, which is these things that we assume we have to rid ourselves of are actually us. And it's only in coming to understand that, that you become who you are and can live with it. And I I thought that that was a very, are you making the twiddling gesture, Dana? I can hear you. (laughs) <laughs> I felt like I know the, that. I'm
1: not <laughs> twiddling right now I think I, I'm very touched by that and I think Gabby Hoffman's character who is great I agree with you that she is the one of the high points of the show and I just love Gabby Hoffman in general she seems in a way always to be playing herself she's almost always a very yes. twiddly sort of sincere <laughs> spiritual type but, um, but, but that's just such a wonderful winning person to be that I'm always happy to see her in anything but I feel like we're talking around something that this this finale kind of talks around which is the absence of Jeffrey Tambor from it I mean well let's
0: get there I just want to say Something super. Sorry, I just want to say something super quickly. I agree that's where we have to go next. I began, to, uh, Julia, I followed your trajectory exactly. I began by thinking uh, this is over conceptualized and underwritten. It's nostalgic for itself. I went from no way to okay to this is extraordinary over the course of the, roughly the first 40 minutes of it. And then the last hour or so, I was in, completely enchanted. I was totally back into it. I loved its weirdness. I loved the courage with it, which, which it carried itself. Uh, through and um, uh, and I want to point to one particular turning point the rabbi's musical number the rabbi is a great character she's obviously had a tra- deeply traumatic relationship with the son
1: it's Catherine uh, Hahn you're talking about
0: Catherine Hahn, yes as the, as the, as the family's rabbi and her number is wonderful be- because it begins with her finally just bursting out and screaming what all of us I think want to say at that moment to the siblings which is shut the fuck up
2: And at,
0: at that, from that moment on, it fully had its confidence. I thought, I thought it was just a remarkable way to go
2: out.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we should also just talk a little bit about the underlying absence here of Jeffrey Tambor's character Mora, who, you know, I think Jill Soloway has spoken about the fact that if they had it to do over, they would, you know, not cast a cis white man as the lead of this show about a transitioning uh, person. And so there was, there was some concern and complaint just in the evolution of social thinking around the trans experience, even in the years since the show first debuted, that were a baseline for understanding Tambor's much praised, and I think generally highly regarded performance in the role, um, an Emmy-winning performance in the role. And then there were reports uh, that Tambor has consistently denied that he uh, harassed some trans actors on the set. And so he left the show and is not in this final season. So it's sort of been written around that absence in a central way. And I'm curious, Steve, what you made of that. I mean, as someone who didn't have a particular relationship other than just having read about it with the Pfeffermans or that performance or, you know, the evolution beyond the first season, what was it like to see them convened around this, you know, death that we knew was a stand in for something else?
0: Oh a couple things. One is that the, the Tambor is just an incredible talent. I mean ever since Larry Sanders when I first became aware of him when he played Hank, the kind of Ed man like sidekick. I mean he's obviously a comic genius and a and it's come out over the course of especially this show, he's a dramatic genius too. I mean the politics of of having a cis uh you know man play a a, a transgender character aside, which I agree now it, it, ironically partially because of the kinds of break, breakthroughs that the show enabled, is it would be unacceptable. But at the time, it happened, and Tambor was amazing. I mean, so much of what was... He was so vulnerable, his Mora was so vulnerable, was so, you know, trying to come into herself... Uh, and it played out on on that actor's face in a way that was extraordinary. And I think they made two very courageous choices, or well, one courageous and one very shrewd choice. The courageous choice was not to try to make the show move forward without Tambor, to not, you know, write him out of the show, uh, have Maura die, and then continue the continue the show, which was otherwise a you know huge success for Amazon. I mean, they made the right creative choice. And then for the finale, they made a very shrewd choice, which is, this is very much about an absence. Um, you know, the absence of Tambor is echoed in the absence of the dead father slash mother. And all of the equivocal feelings you have about someone who's um, d- damaged you uh, thanks to the excesses and, and uh, you know, jaggedness of their own selfhood um you know, and yet you in some way loved and respected. I mean, it's a show about ambivalence and the ambivalence of losing a parent with whom maybe you did not work through all of your issues. And, um, so I, I thought the way they dealt with, with Mora Mora's death and Tambor's absence was, was, they were enfolded with one another within one another and, and it was done very elegantly and very self-consciously.
3: Yeah. That's so interesting, Steve. I mean, I, I, it, it did seem sort of wise about that absence. And I think the show is such an interesting document of this moment in American collective understanding of gender. I mean, you know, Jill Soloway, uh, in the course of making the show, discovered their own non-binary status and um, you know, really has said that making the show challenged their own understanding of gender. And I think we see some of that arc there. Um, you know, one piece I would really recommend, there's two pieces I would recommend people read about this. The first is that Willa Paskin, whose criticism, I, you know, I always love, like no lead of a TV review has more just precisely nailed my exact emotional response to something than her kind of incredulously admiring response to the train wreck of this finale. So I would send you to Willa just for the a sheerly pleasurable read. But um, the, the, the one piece I think people really should read about this show is the piece that Emily Vanderwerf uh, wrote about it for Vox. You know, Emily is a, a critic who is trans and who um, wrote with just great, sympathy and understanding, I think, about the show's own evolution and articulates that the show is fundamentally about the experience of having someone you love transition. It's not actually about the trans experience. It's about the experience of being adjacent to the trans experience, as Jill Soloway was when their parent uh, transitioned, and that it is a deeply human and, and, and poignant record of that experience and the the I won't reveal the um, full arc of Emily's essay, but I thought that that was just an incredibly persuasive um, and generous reading of what the show actually achieved and really a beautiful one. So I, I would send people to that for sure.
0: Yeah, here here. Yeah, absolutely. And a
1: wonderfully ambivalent piece, you know? I mean, one is not really a piece of criticism in a way. It's a very autobiographical reflection on how her own relationship to the show has has changed since she transitioned essentially during the the course of the show, right? I mean, she remembers watching the the early episodes before ever having dared start to to start and come to come out to anyone and so yeah it's a beautiful piece i agree thanks for sending people there
0: all right well obviously the show's transparent this was its musical finale it is streaming on amazon uh tell us what you thought all right moving on All right, for our segment, we're joined by extreme friend of the program, EFAP, Wesley Morris, who is, of course, the Pulitzer Prize-winning critic. He's something like critic at large for the entirety of the New York Times. You hover over the whole enterprise, ready to criticize it and everything else, a staff writer for the magazine. Wesley, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, you guys. It's it's really nice to be here, I must say, like, especially, well, just, it's nice to be here.
0: Um, Wesley, let me begin by saying you showed so so much promise you were a critic of talent <laughs> conversationality range and then you went and uh, uh, and uh. then you went and you wrote this piece you said <laughs> i am the kind of person who believes that gwyneth paltrow was for a while the best young best I'm just looking at that. I can't get past that word. Best young American actor in Hollywood. She's still among the very last generation of movie performers, including Cotillard and Kate Blanchett, Winslet, and Kidman, for whom stardom and skill seem scarily, thrillingly natural. <sighs> I love the wine and Paltrow's flirtation. I could do a dramatic reading of this whole piece. It's just so crazy. <laughs> Wesley, Can you just defend yourself,
2: please? But do I need a defense is the question, right? <laughs> I am very aware of and open to the idea that people do not like Gwyneth Paltrow. When, I, when I'm saying what I'm saying about her being the greatest American actor of... A, of, I mean, the, the window is kind of small for that. I'm not taking a huge risk in saying it, right? Because really what we're talking about are the years... Mm, 1996 to maybe 2000... Two or three? I mean, it just isn't, you know, it like the facts are sort of more, the situation is more in my favor than it is in anybody who would dispute what I'm saying. But I'm very open to that because there are lots of great actors who are her age from that period. Um, but it's more like I was thinking a lot about why one of my favorite actors stopped acting increasingly less. And I was sort of at a moment where I was thinking about moving into the camp of, I mean, not mockery, but just like, what a a squandering, it seemed to me. You know, then the Weinstein story breaks. (laughs) And I, I started to just sort of, I just did some dot connection because all of those women, all the actors who we knew... They, I don't know if you did a timeline of the the point at which something about their career or their relationship to their careers seemed to change. I, I mean, I think it, it, it directly intersects with whatever their relationship, whatever, whenever their relationship with Harvey Weinstein took a toxic turn. Hmm. Well, I mean, I it, don't know. But that the, isn't
1: quite I, true in her case because she seems I mean, I think she herself would say that she sort of survived the Weinstein uh hurricane better than a lot of her her peers did, right? I mean, she sort of stuck around yeah. fakely smiling in photos with him and, you know, still managed to have a career.
2: But but I'm not saying these people stopped acting.
3: Yeah, no, I mean I read I I appreciate uh Steve's hyperbolic preamble here, and I think just generally I may be more sympathetic to the idea that Gwyneth is a compelling screen presence. She's definitely just a compelling presence. Um, But to me, the piece was almost about untangling our just sort of fan cinema going response to the Hollywood we think we've seen as a evolution of, you know, here's some talented people whose careers happen and the kind of hidden Hollywood that seems to have been revealed by the Weinstein reporting and other reporting, which just makes you think about whose stories get told and who's making the decisions about those stories and what are the underlying mechanics of power and what is the experience of working within that as an actress particularly. I mean, you know, we just earlier in the show, we talked about Joker and, you know, had mixed feelings about it. But if you think about, okay, why is it that we're, you know, just languidly, cinematically wallowing wallowing in that emotional experience. I I don't know. To me, I I loved this essay, but in part because it seemed not just about Gwyneth, but about the scales falling from our eyes as we think about what we think we've known and developed in our own relationship to countless actors uh, over the last few decades. Am I wrong in in reading that undercurrent there?
2: I mean, Wesley would say no. (laughs) I mean, that was sort of the essence of writing it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that I really, I wanted to, well, okay, I'm going to be totally honest with you guys, though. I can remember listening to Grantland's uh, Girls in Hoodies podcast years ago. This is like 2012 or 13, and they had a conversation about Gwyneth, the three of them, and I just remember thinking... Yeah, they were torn about how they felt about Gwyneth Paltrow. And I can remember thinking, this is a great actor that we now can beat up on because she has this, this in our eyes, What is what in our eyes is a ridiculous lifestyle company. And there's something obnoxious about her. And she fulfills all of these fantasies that we have. I think in particular about hating a well-heeled white woman who seems to be unabashed in her, I don't know, her sort of casual comfort in her white womanhood. Um, it's just fun to beat up on Gwyneth Paltrow because she, it seems like not only can she take it, but she seems to deserve our contempt. Um, I was able to separate out those feelings from those feelings of, of those feelings other people had from my own feelings, which are basically that I thought she was a great actor. And that was, this is a piece I maybe in my head would have written six years ago, but now I felt a kind of moral urgency to to at least question Mm. what it was that got her from this place in the early in the late 90s and early 2000s to this place now where she like owns a company that's entirely hers and it it seems cordoned off from any of the horrible things that have happened to her and lots of other women um i don't know i just feel like i was just sort of doing a little bit of armchair psychology without necessarily saying that that was what i was necessarily doing well, there's this, co- I mean,
0: there's a complicated relationship, as we all know, between being an actor and a star. And there's, yes. you know, a way in which they are distinct and a way in which they hopelessly blend into one another, and that one's star image is exploited every second one is on screen being an actress or actor. And so, and. Th- you know. So secondly, I'd I'd add to that. She, her damage is heavily so to the extent her star image has declined, even though her acting remains strong or maybe even superlative. You know, this is a self inflicted problem. I mean, she it's not that she went out and maybe had a somewhat ordinary set of personal foibles, and the you know tabloid press vengefully seized upon them and stoked up backlash against her um it's that she went out and started an obnoxious like as obnoxious like in extremis obnoxious lifestyle brand that was oblivious to the fact that a she was born on third base right i mean she's a Mm-hmm, privileged mm-hmm. child of the Upper East Side and, and the and the most rarefied public school. You know, and comes from, comes from
1: an entertainment family as well. And I comes from
0: ask. an entertainment family. Uh, and B, was already making a King's Ransom, you know, being an actress. Uh, and C, a lot of the lifestyle brand is involved in selling utter quackery. I mean, in, in some instances, possibly... I don't want to go as far as to say dangerous quackery. Oh yeah, but I no, mean, she
1: is because she's completely connected with dangerous quackery. I mean, we could cite um, the individual, the vaginal steaming and you know jamming right. jade eggs up your yoni. You know, she's she's right. done. She's advised some very dubious things.
0: But I'm also willing to say that uh, a that all this did was raise the extraordinary degree of difficulty in pulling off this piece for one Wesley Morris, and that b I kind of think you're right. I mean, I will never forget when I went to see the movie seven and she's, she plays an important, but not huge role in that movie. I remember when I saw that movie thinking that person is a star. I I can't Mm -hmm. exactly put my finger on why it's an understated, in some respects, very small performance. Um, and yet I, that person is, I'm looking at a real person, um, you know, who belongs on screen. And she's gone on to do extraordinary work. So in that sense, I kind of, I kind of agree with the central argument. Overstated as it might be. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh.
1: Wesley, I have a specific sentence to query you about, and I'll get there in a second. But sure. I, I wanted to start off by saying that I, I sort of believe as a critic that it's I, I disapprove although i sometimes do it unconsciously of the idea of, of having you know a fixed take on it, a particular performer before you go into the movie i mean i admit that i myself mm-hmm. have written an entire an entire review centered around how much natalie portman gets on my nerves as a performer but nonetheless oh, i yes. try i try to wipe the slate clean you know and let her win me over again each time and i you know understand that she as an actor she's always shifting right so you can't just make up your mind about what she does and decide that you hate it but that said i have to say that i I have to do some conscious slate cleaning when I go to see a Gwyneth Paltrow movie, which, as you point out, there hasn't been one in a while except for the Avengers movies anyway. Um, But, yeah, Paltrow is somebody who, even when she's doing her strongest work, which I agree with you, is the movie star stuff. You know, she's good at being a movie star. And that point I really agree with the the part about the, the thrill of watching her sort of fold her her outside-of-films persona into what she does on screen. Um, But the sentence I wanted to get to that you say you love, which maybe gets at exactly what often bugs me about Gwyneth, is quote. And Stephen mm-hmm. read it out loud earlier, I think, in his in his reading. I love the wine in Paltrow's flirtation. Yeah. <laughs> you do, you yeah, don't really yeah. elaborate on that. But I think it's it's sort of the the whininess and the flirtation and the way they are braided together that's always bothered me and maybe a lot of people about her. I remember this great sentence. And if I Googled enough, I could figure out who wrote it. Maybe somebody can find it who's listening and send it to me. But around the time of Shakespeare in Love, when, she, when we were in the moment of what you call High Paltrow in your essay, somebody wrote of Gwyneth Paltrow that she... She acts in films as if she's always, quote, sprinkling fairy dust on her own head, unquote. And that's always <laughs> stuck with me about Gwyneth. And it's also just in general, uh, you know, a certain kind of ingenue actress who seems to enjoy her own beauty and her own power over, you know, uh, her seductive power, let's say, or sort of or in Gwyneth's case, maybe less seductive than, you know, winning in a sort of um, innocent, uh, more princess-like way, Um I will think of that fairy dust or even people in their real I don't you know people in real life who are always sprinkling fairy dust on their own head. So to me she's one of those
2: people. God, yes.
1: So, I want to hear what it is about that what to me is is um so Wesley, I want to hear more about what to me reads as a kind of please love me uh desperate sweetness in in Gwyneth Paltrow's performances as a wine, a flirty wine that you love.
2: Well, okay, here's the thing. I feel like that is a completely legitimate but utterly restricted way of thinking about Gwyneth Paltrow because if you really think about it, and this is why I sort of, I, I went back to watch this stuff and it is really true. I did keep a wellness file and it is true that I kept it in order to find silly things in movies she was in where she, the goopness of her being in the movie sort of overlapped with her performance. And, but at some point I real cause I think maybe that I too had this idea of her being, this this um i don't know this this princess which is really it's only really truly true in shakespeare in love and the thing that about that performance is interesting to me is she was the first person near an academy award who was just being there for having given what we would all recognize as a classic movie star performance or a classic star making performance maybe julia roberts in pretty woman would have been the first person She would have been the first person since Julia Robertson, Pretty Woman, to even be nominated for just first woman anyway, for best actress to be nominated for just being what we would all recognize as being a movie star. Most of the work she did after that was suffering in some way. It was being made to suffer or actually suffering. And... That to me was was my favorite mode for her. I mean, and it was the. I mean, I don't know if I had an alternative option because that's mostly what she did for the for at the high point of her career and just beyond it. Um, and she was really good at inhabiting. I don't know. Did you guys? Did, have you guys seen? Um, did you see Bounce? No. Do you remember that movie? Mm. It's no. it's not great, but she and she is she's basically this this miserable widow who meets Ben Affleck and sort of tries to develop a relationship with him. And if memory serves, that relationship kind of takes a turn and she goes South and her South is so much better than most people's North East, West, whatever. Um, There's a kind of understanding that she has of various mental illnesses, um, how to inhabit anger and rage and suffering that is so acutely resonant. Also, I should say this about me and my relationship to this woman. There's a kind of um, there's a kind of famous person, there's a kind of actor, but mostly like movie star-oriented person, where there's something essential about them that speaks to something that you believe is essential about you. And at the seeing her and Emma. I recognized in this person a kind of intelligence that I thought and you know, Emma would have come out when I was a junior in, in college. I recognized in this version of Emma um, a, an intelligence that that I, that was mine in some way like I too would, would have said I pride myself on having a kind of social intelligence to like do bad matchmaking. Um, I don't know. I just really identify with this person. And so when she takes this turn into this other direction, I kind of also related to that, too, even though I don't I don't suffer from depression or bipolar or manic depression or any any of that class of mental illness. But there was something about the pain and suffering that she was able to like to convey to me that was really, really resonant. And I did not like to see her go through that. And that's just, to me, the testament of not only a good actor, but in a lot of those roles, like a like a, like a true movie star.
0: Wesley, it is always just an absolute uh, insuperable pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> Let's please do this more often.
2: I miss you guys. I mean, I don't really miss you because I listen, but I mean, I do miss talking to you guys. I and love that you I listen. I love you knowing happen.
1: you're out there listening every week. I listen every week. What are you kidding? <laughs> And then yeah, when I, I see you, show. when I see you, you always have reactions to individual shows and little bits of <laughs> gossipy response to all of our responses. I love it.
0: All right. Well, we'll do it. All right. Thanks a lot, Wesley.
2: Okay. Talk to you guys later.
0: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana.
2: <sighs> Steve. <sighs> oh, <No>, dear. <laughs>
1: Dana. The problem with my name ending in a vowel is that you're... you're Intonations could potentially go on indefinitely. I never know when the the last A is done. (laughs) I need a consonant please. Um, All right. My endorsement this week is going to be something that doesn't really need my help because it's already doing smashingly well and being praised by everyone. But I just I have to join the chorus for She Said, the new book by Jodi Cantor and Megan Toohey that to a greater degree than I realized is a behind the scenes TikTok of how they uncovered the Weinstein story and all the other sexual harassment stories they pursued beginning in 2017 that, as we know, helped to ignite the Me Too movement and change the way we think about gender in the workplace. I mean, I knew I, I had followed their reporting so closely at the time that when I heard a book was coming out, I sort of thought, well, isn't isn't it going to be a summary of stuff I already know? But then someone, someone here at Slate said, oh, you know what? No, it's, it's, it's more like a behind-the-scenes mystery of almost a, a how-to reporting story. How do you get a story like this? And uh, and what happens in the relationship between the journalists and the sources to make this kind of um, delicate storytelling, legally delicate, emotionally delicate, et cetera, possible. And uh, it's I just started it, but it is really, really an incredible read. I mean, to give you an idea, especially if you're a journalist, I mean, I almost hesitate to call myself a journalist compared to, you know, what people like these two women can do. But, if you are somebody who does things like try to get an interview with someone, right? Think about how to word an email so that you can get that interview, um, and especially if you're doing it in a in a highly volatile context, as they were in in 2017. This this book really just scratches that itch. You can see them agonizing over things like, I mean, very early in the book, how is Jody going to word her email to Rose McGowan, who was one of their early sources, so that Rose McGowan replies to the email and gives her an interview, Um, does not splash all over the Internet that, you know, she's talking to a New York Times reporter because as they mention in the book, but they say very tactfully, Rose McGowan was a, you know, kind of a a character, right? She's somebody who was was very over the top in her self-presentation even before this Weinstein story broke. And so they want her to be discreet, but they want her to reply and they want her to reply honestly and feel safe. Anyway, and so the the wording of this email becomes one of the early kind of twists in the book. And it's just such a page turner to think, how is Jody going to word that email to Rose McGowan? So I, I only just started the book, but I'm really looking forward to more twists in the tale of how the Weinstein story and others were broke, broken. So again, she said by Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, it's it's great.
0: Julia, what do you have?
3: My endorsement is a song that's now a few weeks old uh, and just hopelessly dated in internet terms, but a bit of a bonbon that gave me joy recently was the video for the Normani song "Motivation," which is like the homage of a you know 21st century girl to the kind of hip-hop and r&b videos of the early aughts aka like when she was born essentially i think or, or shortly thereafter um and i won't say much more about it it's just it's just a great video it's full of joy the song is good it's an amusing watch i send you to it motivation by normani
0: uh, all right, well, I, it's been a while since I've uh, endorsed uh, pieces of writing, essay writing, think piece, uh, review writing that I really admired. So I'm going to do two this week, and they're uh pretty related to one another. Each, in their own way, deal with the general cultural slash literary problem, which is what to do with these towering mid-century figures.
3: Uh, uh Oh, I know what you're going to endorse. It's yeah,
0: good. Especially mailer roth and uh, updike these you know mount rushmore and bellow right so I th- i'd say those four really principally these these four you know f- faces carved on the mount rushmore of mid-century literary america who now from the point of view of 2019 seem misogynistic possibly racist classist um you know they suffer from all the failings of mid-century white men. Uh, and they did suffer from those. Uh, I'm in no way trying to minimize that. They also were astonishing writers. I mean, I, arguably two and a half of them are, are you know, insuperable geniuses. Um and there were two essays, each dealing with one of these writers and each brilliant in their own way and coming out in wonderfully equivocal, ambivalent places, which is, I think, what a critic has to do in relation to these. The first is in the London Review of Books, uh, Patricia Lockwood, who's a, I think was at least initially known as a poet, is becoming now known, I think quite rightly, as a great critic, wrote an essay called Malfunctioning Sex Robot, a robot about um, John Updike, in which she goes and reads, I think, almost all of Updike. And it becomes a life experience for her more than an assignment. And the essay is as much kind of a memoir of what it's like for a, you know, whatever wave feminist she is, uh, still young woman in two thousand and nineteen, to immerse herself in Updike, who is probably, first of all, I would say his reputation is the most troubled of the four on all counts, both as a uh, both as a writer and as a politically incorrect. You know, uh, dinosaur, but um, it's it's a it's a brilliant essay, and it it it's like what I love about it in part also is that Updike, who constantly pushed his own mag- magnificent verbal, you know, talents over the top and his imaginative talents way over the top to the point of absurdity, she allows Updike to push her in the same realm and kind of meet him, you know, verbal pyrotechnic for verbal pyrotechnic, and additionally a kind of OTT. You know, mania overtakes the essay um, that I think she's mostly in control of, but she doesn't need to be. It's just that it's a tour de force. I mean, it's uh, so good. It's oh, wait, it's I, haven't read read it. read. I love
1: Patricia Lockwood. Can't wait to read that.
3: Yeah,
0: she's, she's I don't just even
3: of, love Patricia Lockwood. And now I do because I thought this essay was so good. I mean, not that I didn't, but I just wasn't as entranced by some of her, you know, interneting as other people were, I sensed. And I just thought this was a bravura piece of thinking and writing.
0: And then I think, you know, it's, it's I mean, as hard as this may be to believe, white men have to come to grips with the legacy of white men, too, each in our own way, collectively and each in our own way. There's an essay by Thomas Meany, and I'm embarrassed to say, I did not know Thomas Meany's work until I read this, and then I started finding more of it. Uh, he's a He is a really, really talented writer. I think his background is more history and intellectual history, um, slightly more, maybe, um, Uh, academy-oriented than Lockwood, but he is, in his own right, a great, great critic. And he wrote an essay for the TLS uh, called Scavenger of Eternal Truths, in which he comes to grip with Mailer, Norman Mailer, especially the Mailer of the 1960s. And it is super self-consciously about what to do with this sloppy, magnificent, you know, astonishing, you know, gigantic literary talent uh, who is probably even more politically incorrect (laughs) than Updike and... um, uh, it's just a brilliant essay. I like, yeah, I mean, they're both, the, read them back to back. They're both just astonishing pieces of writing. I mean, I have to read my favorite sentence. I wish I had a favorite sentence from the Lockwood. I could read one from each, but uh, let me read a little bit from it. It's just so great. All of almost all the negatives typically thrown at Mailer, if anyone still bothers to throw anything at him, cling awkwardly to their target. That he was a misogynist, that he was venal, that he was a political romantic, that he was morbidly self-absorbed. When your politics are about resuscitating the life worlds of Edmund Burke and Thomas Aquinas via the methods of Walt Whitman and Leon Trotsky, your program is de- designed to cruise out of range of the expected flack. Anyway, it's they're both just they're just just great tour de force pieces of critical writing, both highly recommended. All right, so that's uh, Scavenger of Eternal Truths. It's on the TLS Times Literary Supplement website. It's by Thomas Meany, M-E-A-N-E-Y, and the other is by Patric- Patricia Lockwood uh, in the London Review of Books. We'll link to them. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, you. Thanks, Julia. Peppy show. Thank you. Yeah. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page, slatecom culturefest. You can email us. I say it every week. I just am so sincere. Our emails have gotten better and better. We're at culturefest at slate.com. We love hearing from you. You can interact with us on Twitter. We have a, a feed, it's at slate slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Cleo Levin. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.
1: Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. I
0: mean, maybe a failure in some ways. It may be trying to have it both ways. It may be trying to, you know, very joker-like, you know, both be outre and laugh all the way to the bank. But there is no doubt in my mind that this is a conscious effort to drain the mythomania out of The superhero genre, and to me, that is just an astonishing gesture.